Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, over the Lent season... We have been going through the book of Job, and we have now come uh, to the end of that book. And while uh, next Sunday, which is, of course, Easter, uh, we'll be returning to Job for a reflection that comes out of uh, chapter 9 earlier in the book, today we actually come to the end of the story of Job. Now, over Lent, we've wrestled with some pretty big questions in the book of Job. Uh, In particular, we've been wrestling with the question, why? Why does God allow suffering to persist? And how exactly does a good God allow suffering to befall all of us, even the innocent among us? If he is so powerful, so wise, where is he amongst the worst suffering that I and countless others have experienced? And frankly, as we've seen week over week, uh, there really are not full answers to that question. But despite the fact that throughout this book, We never get full answers to those questions. God does not leave us without particular insights as to why he allows what he allows, why he does what he does. The book of Job has done this over and over again, giving us insights. And as we approach this final chapter, uh, we see a bit of a summary of sorts, a summary that actually provides us with some additional key takeaways that we all need in the midst of this world that is marked by suffering. And so I want to look at several things that's Uh, that are happening here in this passage. First, I want to take a look at Job's contrition. I want to take a look at Job's friend's conundrum. And then finally, we're going to take a look at God's restoration. So first, Job's contrition. Uh, So first, if you've been with us um, over these weeks, and in particular last week, we saw God respond to Job. It has been 30-plus chapters of complete silence from God, which in and of itself I recognize uh, is a little bit odd. All right, we saw God's conversation with Satan at the very beginning of the book, uh, and then Satan comes and inflicts all this suffering upon Job. Uh, and once that suffering starts, we begin to see Job wrestling with the suffering that he's experiencing. But in the midst of that, God goes totally silent. God does not respond to Job. Now, for some, 
that alone, that silence alone is a great injustice. Meaning for some, we approach the story and we think, wow, I mean, who does God think he is to not only allow Job to suffer unjustly, but then say nothing about that suffering? I recognize that for some, both here and maybe in our lives, we struggle with the reality uh, that God allows this suffering. And so as a result, we begin to struggle with God's character. What kind of God is this? Or maybe it even leads us to the point where we reject his existence at all. And to all of that, I would just say, I hear you. I mean, this is the great tension being presented to us in the book of Job. And in a moment, we're going to come back to that question of God's character. But I want to just take a moment uh, and consider that idea of rejecting God and his existence at all as a result of suffering. And I want to start with this notion that if God does not exist— then nothing that we have been doing matters. None of this matters at all. Suffering is not just some glitch in the system in which we live, but rather suffering is just a necessary feature of the system in which we live in. Meaning, in a purely evolutionary-based world, the survival of the fittest, the cycle of life, requires suffering and death. And anything that we experience in life really only serves as a necessary part of that cycle of living and dying. You know, for example, at best, our understandings of love and justice and compassion and the like are just evolutionary developments that best serves the propagation of our species. They're really nothing more than those ideas. They are not actual things, actual realities. They are just figments of our evolved brain. And so, really, we have there's no real objective value that any of them have beyond the pragmatic necessity of propagation. Though we currently value modern expressions of things like love and justice and compassion as a means of propagation from an evolutionary perspective, dominance and violence have actually seemed to serve our species pretty well and have done so for countless millennia. And so all that just to say... If we struggle with the notions of suffering, it really doesn't make any sense to. You know, all that's to say if we struggle with the realities of suffering in our world, but we have no framework for God who created a world without it, then it just seems like wrestling with the notion of suffering is a fool's errand. It's nonsensical. But all that said, if we think that love and justice and compassion are real things, And if we see suffering as a glitch, believing that suffering by its nature is suffering because it takes away that which is most meaningful to us, things that actually matter, then we need to be able to look past the immediate experiences of this world and instead see the one in whom love and justice and compassion are rooted and the one in whom evil and suffering is not found. Now, with all that said, that brings us back now to our passage, Job's response to God in our passage. See, after God had confronted Job's doubts and questions, Job then responds in chapter 42, verse 2. He's uh, saying this. He says, I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be thwarted. 
You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. In other words, when we looked at this last week, in other words, Job finally takes his focus off the suffering that had befallen him and begins to focus his attention on the God whose plans cannot be thwarted, whose counsel and knowledge are beyond question, and whose purposes are too wonderful for Job to know. And as Job realizes such things, in verse 5, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, he repents of his unwillingness to acknowledge God's power and nearness amid the suffering. And here's why that matters. Though Job, over the course of the entire narrative, doubts God, questions God, and demands answers from God, he nonetheless directs all that frustration toward God. Meaning he never cries out into the darkness. He never despairs to the point of silent anger or resentment. And he never comes to the point of questioning or doubting that God was there. Instead, He directs every complaint, every bit of anger, every bit of confusion at God. And that, my friends, is incredibly instructive for us. A man who has suffered in many ways that many of us will not know or understand or experience, he always came to God for answers, believing the entire time that God had those answers. And here, at the end of the story, Though he never received those answers for why he suffered, he nonetheless, in his contrition and repentance, maintained that God was God. I mean, some of us here need that kind of reminder in the midst of suffering. We need reminders that no matter how angry or disoriented we might be in the midst of suffering, no matter uh, if we um, sense silence from God when we were expecting answers, We must nonetheless bring our confusion, bring our frustration to God. Because the alternative is a resignation to the fact that you are on your own. You are experiencing a normal feature of this world, and there is no hope that any of it will make any sense because there are no answers. Job never descended into that kind of despair. And we don't have to either. But though he wants answers— Though we want answers to our questions about suffering, sometimes the answers we receive are not always good answers. Which brings us to the second stage of this passage, which is Job's friend's contrition. Uh, So after God confronts Job, he then turns his attention to the three friends of Job, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And in verse 6, we hear God say to Eliphaz, he says this, He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends. Let me pause there for a minute. Why? Well, as a reminder, remember what the friends have been saying about Job. For many, many chapters, they have been berating Job by insisting that because Job suffered, God must be punishing him. They insisted on this very tight correlation between Job's suffering and Job's unrighteousness. That a just God would never allow a righteous man to suffer Ergo, Job must be unrighteous. Now, up until this point, we have been, in a, bit, we have been a, a little bit unsure 
about how God feels about such accusations. Because Job has refused to admit that this is true. He refuses to admit that he's unrighteous. But since God has been silent, we really couldn't know whether or not they were right up until now. And in God's response, what we see is that Job is vindicated. How? Well, the reason God is angry with the friends is in verse 6. I think we could throw that up. In verse 6, it says, God's angry because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my, Job, or as my servant Job has. Their accusations against God were a result of wrong assumptions about God. How is that the case? Well, there's several things to note. First, we could say that in Job's recent confession, he acknowledges the ways that God's plans and purposes and wisdom and knowledge are too wonderful to comprehend. And that in his suffering, God is in control and is at work as Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the God of covenant promises that we looked at last week. Job's friends still have this cause-and-effect mindset, and God is saying to them, do you really assume that when suffering comes, it's because I am bringing punishment? Seriously. God is making quite clear how wrong-headed that is. He's angry with them for assuming that that's the situation when it comes to suffering. But second, however, is that, you know, in week one, if you remember, we noted how these friends represented the, the wisdom of the world. You know, most great world religions and philosophies see suffering in the way that they see suffering. And these friends, though real people interacting with Job, they also represent the best that the world has to offer us in regards to suffering. But all through the narrative, we have, we we saw this uh, last week in particular, what we saw is that Job's friends, in all of their articulations about suffering to Job, they never actually referred to Job, I'm sorry, they never referred to God by his covenant name of Yahweh. This is a key thing that we looked at last week. Unlike Job, they don't ever wrestle with God as those who know him, but rather they talk about God. In other words, they don't know him. And as a result, they simply postulate, pontificate, assume things about God, whereas Job wrestles with God. This really struck me this week. But as one, you know, reads some of the great religions of the world, the great philosophies of the world, many of the writings of those who give this great wisdom. And this even happens amongst uh, many secular humanists as well who tend to be antagonistic toward Christianity. Many of them speak about God. Few actually are wrestling with God by knowing God. Job had a very different experience of suffering because he knew God and didn't just pontificate about God. This really struck me uh, actually recently as I was rereading um, uh, some uh, well-known book by a well-known secular critic of Christianity, uh, a guy named Sam Harris. Um, and I'm, as I was reading a, a book of his, and he's, you know, other thinkers like him, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, like these are very uh, popular people, many of whom that I've enjoyed reading over the years. I actually uh, agree with many of them uh, and many of their, th- their thoughts, even though they are very antagonistic to all things religion. And they are really just recapitulations of 
people throughout history, like Foucault and the Bertrand Russells and the Nietzsche's and the Marx. Like, these are people, of course, that are thinking about the world, philosophically considering the experiences that we have in the world, and all of them share very strong opinions about their notions of faith, and in particular, very strong opinions about the God of the Bible. And while there's a lot that could be said about their perspective, something that strikes me as you read them, and I was reminded of it uh, just a couple weeks ago, is that you begin to realize that these people, as they're wrestling, are not people who have spent time wrestling with God. Rather, they are people who pontificate about God. And in so doing, they reveal the extent to which they don't know him. You know, philosophical and even religious conceptions of God will ultimately fail because they know not the God whom they critique or attempt to describe. They truly assume that their intellect, their wisdom, their insight, their knowledge are sufficient to understand and comprehend and to categorize and assess the infinite, all-powerful, all-glorious one. And here's the upshot of all of this. Our ability to handle suffering well has a direct correlation to the depth of relationship we have with God. And suffering reveals how deep that relationship is and how well we know God. You know, not all the time, but often, our inner life with God is something developed outside of seasons of suffering and then is solidified through the furnace of inevitable suffering. Meaning, when my hope and trust and reliance and depth of relationship with God is developed before suffering comes, all that relationship is brought with me into that season of suffering. And as a result, we suffer differently because we know God. We trust his character. We believe his promises. And we see this in Job. He was always a man who trusted and knew God, even before the suffering came. But then, when suffering did come, because of his relationship with God, he suffered differently than his friends who never knew God. And so the question then before us all, whether we're in the midst of suffering right now or not, is do we know God? Or do we just know about God? You know, am I actively developing a relationship with the Lord? Am I actively seeking to trust and rely on Him more? I can tell you both from personal experience and also as a pastor who meets with people regularly, there is often that direct correlation between the depth of trust and reliance and relationship that I have with God, with my ability to suffer well. But as we read these stories, we are led throughout the story of Job to see friend, the friends as the wrong ones, right? We're just, in our passage, it's being very, made very clear. They were wrong. And so as a result, we might instinctively condemn Job's friends, well, while we might want to most identify with Job and his ultimate, ultimate willingness to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, it, too often, I think, in the end, if we're honest, we aren't Job. More often than not, we are actually his friends. And we naturally err in the same ways that they tend to err because we err in the same ways. It is also true that we also need what they needed. We err the same way, and we need what they need. And what did they need? What, what did we see read in our passage? Job's friends, they needed a friend who was willing to break through their ignorance 
and serve them in a very particular way. All of this revealing to them the true God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And so finally, let's take a look at Job's prayer and God's restoration to see how this came to fruition. Look at uh, verse 7. If you guys want to throw that up for me, please. Starting in verse 7, let me just recap what, we've, what we just heard read right a minute ago. So after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Let me stop there. What brought these friends into fellowship with God? How did their perspectives change? It was through a sacrifice and a mediating prayer from Job. See, while these friends always assumed that they knew about God, it was not until this moment they got the truest picture of God. If you remember from, from last week, again, they never called or referred to God by his intimate covenant name. They never called him Yahweh. Now, I won't rehash all of that from from last week, but if you remember, they only referred to God as El or Elohim, which was a generic name for God that spoke of his great power. They have only viewed him through that lens, not through the intimate name of Yahweh, the one who makes promises to us, the one who is intimately near. And if you recall, we also said that we often miss the nuance uh, of this in our English translations of the Bible because we tend to flatten all the various names for God. But in our English translations, if we ever see the pro- if we ever see a Lord in all caps, we know that that is referring to Yahweh, God's proper name. And so as a result, I want you to just take a look at verse 9. Look at what it says. So Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, did what the Lord told them to do. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What is that? Why is that significant? The narrator is showing us the extent to which this sacrifice and this mediating prayer from Job orients the friends toward not just this all-powerful Elohim God, but rather toward Yahweh. It's not explicit, but I can't help but see these friends as those who for the first time are getting to know God as a result of what we're seeing here. And the reason they come to truly know him is because of a righteous friend who trusted God, prayed for them, and that prayer was accepted by God. Now we've said this time and time again, but Job is a dim reflection of another righteous one. One who, unlike Job, was actually perfectly righteous. One who would come to not ask for a sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice. And one who would come to be a a mediating presence that petitions God on our behalf. And the one whose petitions are heard by and accepted by God. And I want to show you what this looks like in the New Testament. Because it's Jesus Christ who is this greater Job that we're reading about here. Look at, uh, in Romans 8, 
I have this up for you. Let's quickly walk through several verses in Romans 8 to see how Jesus goes about fulfilling these promises made back in Job. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let me stop there for a moment. Jesus Christ is the one who died, laid down his life for us as a sacrifice. And now he is the one who is constantly interceding for us so that we might know and experience Yahweh. And what does that have to do with our suffering? Look at verse 35. It continues on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we are in Christ, and he is our sacrifice, he is our mediator, trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword and any powers will not be able to separate us from the love of God. This is what it means to have Christ as our Savior walking with us in the midst of our suffering. Until we have this knowledge of the character and the purposes of God in our suffering, my friends, we will naturally spiral into despair But when we have this experience of Jesus, suffering, though it will still be painful, it will not be without hope. For we will know that Yahweh, covenant-keeping, intimate God, is with us, even in the midst of that suffering. And this, my friends, is the hope that we can take into suffering. The suffering will remain painful, but we know the end of the story. For it's a story of Christ's Victory, a victory that he wins for his friends. I'll close with this. Uh, as many of you know, as we just prayed a little bit ago, of course, there was a mass shooting this week in Nashville. Killed six people, including three children and the shooter as well, all of whom were image bearers. And we grieve, of course, for such a tragedy. But the other thing that was uh, interesting about the story as though it was a horrific tragedy on its own, the school um, where the shooting took place was actually a ministry of a church that's in the same denomination as our church. Uh, And so we actually have friends and colleagues who are deeply impacted by this shooting. And one of the young children that was killed, Haley Shrugs, was the daughter of the pastor in that school, or of of the church of the school. And several weeks ago, Chad is his name, Pastor Chad Shrugs. He preached a sermon, uh, and a clip of that sermon has made its rounds online. Uh, He was preaching, again, just weeks before the shooting, he was preaching on the story of Lazarus' death. Uh, If you know the story, Jesus, he arrives uh, after his friend Lazarus has passed away, and he's standing at the tomb with Lazarus' grieving family. 
Uh, and if you know the story, uh, Jesus comes to the tomb knowing exactly what he's going to do. He knows that to the amazement of everyone, he plans to raise Lazarus from the dead. And with that, Pastor Shrug says this, again, just weeks before his precious daughter is taken from him. He says, one of the most remarkable things about this story that always gets me is that knowing exactly what he is going to do, Jesus sits down and does what? He weeps. Do you see that a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle? A mature faith adds its tears to the sadness of our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, all while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. I can't imagine the pain that this family is experiencing. But in that pain, I trust that this Jesus, who knows the power he possesses to resurrect the dead, is also the same Jesus who sits and weeps with us in our suffering. That, my friends, is Yahweh. And I trust that Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God, this intimate God, is with the Shrug family now, weeping with them, even though they know the end of the story, that one day resurrection power will come. Jesus is there, weeping with them in the midst of their suffering. And even as different statements actually come out from that family, I know that they are suffering differently because they trust this to be true. With tears, they suffer, but also with hope because Yahweh is near. Yahweh is present. And you know, when we think about, you know, we've been in this public faith season, right? All of this has kind of been couched in the idea of what does it mean for, for a Christian to suffer differently in such a way that even in our suffering, we proclaim the goodness of God. You know, if we ever think about the uniqueness of the Christian faith's view of suffering, this is it. Jesus is what makes suffering unique for the Christian. Because Jesus is a friend who sits and weeps with us. A friend who sacrifices himself for us. A friend who continues to intercede for us. And that friend who in the end will bring resurrection power to restore all things, redeem all all things. This is what makes the Christian faith different when we think about suffering. And so my prayer for all of us would be, no matter where we are right now, whether we're in the midst of suffering or simply know that one day suffering is going to come, that we would have a deep, rich experience of relationship with this Jesus, with this God who is near, intimate, and close, but also holds power over sin and death. Pray the Spirit of God would make that so very real for us, especially today on Palm Sunday as we celebrate our King. May we experience this, the richness of relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you that even though we suffer, not having all the answers as to why we suffer. 
We thank you that you are not distant, but that you are near. Like Jesus at the tomb, we trust that our Savior is weeping with us in the midst of our suffering. Not because he despairs, not because he does not know what's to come, but because it's a very real reality of our suffering. And because of his great love for us, he identifies and empathizes with us, and yet at the same time also knows the end of the story, a story that ends with resurrection power. I pray, God, that we would have the fullest experience, the richness of relationship with Jesus, that we might recognize his presence with us always. And that even though we will experience tears, we do not cry without hope. For Jesus has given us that great hope of one day he will come to bring full and complete restoration to all things. And so help us, Lord, to trust him all the more as a result. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.org.